0: Thing to do is to be calm if you can. Just uh... oh, one one other thing uh, to quote George A. Uh, uh, keep a straight face if you can. Uh, you'll find that's very handy at the sales meeting. Not easy, but uh, you find it's very handy. <laughs> and then when you look around, you look at all the other guys, and you see that they're struggling. You see the neck muscles twitch a little bit. They're struggling to keep a straight face too, and you wonder. In the whole cosmos. Is anybody serious? Just one? I mean, who really believes it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorehead, rotten person. And so, uh, finally, uh, somebody on British television said it. I mean, just simply said it. That's all there was to it. And it wasn't Monday wasn't even Thursday. He just said it. And for one brief instant, British television hung there on the balance. Was the Western world about to topple into the abyss of total decadence? Because this man had said it on television? Or was the Western world about to climb to greater heights of dynamic creative depravity? It depends on (laughs) which you... You know, I suspected that there must have been 28 trillion guys sitting around those swimming pools, eating off those great big ham hocks. Just packing in the grapes and lapping up the wine and yelling and hollering and pinching the Nubian handmaidens there when Rome was going down the drain and who were thinking that it was all, that it was every, every, every time they stuffed another drape, grape in their trap, every time they grabbed at another chick, they figured that a new avenue of truth and progress was being opened up. (laughs) I mean, that is a quite, you know, that's, that's the problem. You never know. See, it's very difficult to know whether you like the fall of Rome because you're falling. You know, falling's kind of fun. You'd be surprised, you know. Hanging around all these doorsteps and yelling, drinking a sneaky Pete and hollering and you know, throwing the roses and riding around on the top of cars and swimming in the fountain at the plaza and you know, all that stuff. You know, on the one hand you're torn by that thing of saying, Oh, stop it, will you, Charlie? Cut it out. When are you gonna straighten up? She was wow, you're falling. And on the other hand you say, Yeah. <laughs> Gee, it's great. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget my grandmother. My grandmother had uh, these three sets of store teeth, and uh, they were pink and white. And uh, my grandmother used to change them alternately once in a while. she'd uh, And she used to, her big act for us kids when we go to visit her was to show us how she put her teeth in. And that was kind of showbiz. She'd have done pretty good on, on the Ed Sullivan show. Because she had style, you know. Some people just jam in their trap and that's all. But grandmother didn't. She used to gum around there for a while and blow and snort. And she had a funny way of making her, you know, she'd click with her mouth and all that. And she'd put them in and then t- then, t- and then, she'd push them out with her tongue. And that was an early horror picture. Of course, kids always dig monsters. They do. And especially if they're your grandmother. And she'd, she, she would. She'd stick her teeth out and these two big teeth would come out and she would go, Boy, the guys that dive under the daybed and yell and knock over the fig Newtons and, you know, bust up all the wax fruit and everything there. <laughs> and, uh, and, she, she of course, uh, this was her only shtick, if I may use a, a bronxism. Uh, this was her shtick. And grandmother did it. And as a matter of fact, I suspect that when she was laid away, she was, there was a little request somewhere that nobody honored, of course, that she'd be laid away with her teeth sticking out, you know. <laughs> you, did you, are you aware that, that, no, don't laugh. No, wait a minute, don't laugh. Do you know that Bela Lugosi was laid away with his uh, with his uh, cape on? He wore that cape that he wore in Dracula. I'm serious about it. it was a big long black cape that he had made, and uh, it had a red lining. Had this special this high collar, you know, the big high collar with the wing on it, and all that stuff. The special Dracula look about him with the big metal on the front. And when he was put away, when he finally left, uh, he left in his in his will that he be buried in that cape. With a, with a medal from Transylvania there. And, uh, it's a uh, Dracula, Union, or whatever it is, I don't know. Werewolves, you know. And, and, and he was lying there in the thing. And, and I'm curious, I'm very curious about what an anthropologist of, of about the year 2978 is gonna think when he digs, comes across this guy lying there in his cape, you know. But, but that's, uh, this is, this is part of that problem, you know, which, which way you're gonna go. And, and uh, you know, you go to England. Now, one night, uh, can I tell you one more story about television in England? It's uh, And you you really understand what a fantastically puritanical country America is. We are genuinely a puritanical country. Uh, you know that we hire guys up here at the radio station. They've got 27 guys in the television end, for example, that do nothing but cut out fugitive hells and dams. And they have 35 guys cutting them out. And by the way, the people, the people who are watching these television shows use this as their part of their languages steadily, constantly. On and on and on it goes, you know. And, and so, so you, you don't know whether or not which side is the Puritan side of us. The private side or the public side. Uh, this, this is what confuses a, a kid. Really, it does. It confuses people who have the ability to stand back and look at a society and wonder, well, what about a guy? You know, a, a father who is who is cheating on the income tax. He's sitting there. He's got seven shyster lawyers. They're all sitting around in the in the uh, in the dining room there, around the table with the lace tablecloth. They've got the, the lamp pulled down, and he's got the ink all over him. And the, these three shyster lawyers are are faking the diary where he went to eat this day and where who he took to lunch. That they are going back for a whole year, and and at the same time, this guy is 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 in his. uh life towards people around him. He is painfully, squeakily honest. And and so the kid sees these two things, and he can't tell which one the old man is ever, really, because the old man has never been able to tell which one he is either. Uh, I, I've known, I've of course, the, the problem of, of saying, uh, talking about reality on television is not only endemic to our world. Uh, we have here, I set up my, uh, it's time for a British newscast there. All set in there? All right, now hold it there for a minute. Uh, we have a note here that came in from the... Uh, before you do that, uh, hit, hit, hit a little... Uh, hit, before we uh, have our famous British newscast, Sir Reginald H.G. Grubbage, CVM, uh, who will report very shortly, a uh, couple of little whoopies in there, Bob. Please. Here we are at the cave of the 2,500-year-old brewmaster. and Sir, I could hardly sleep last night because I heard that you have a new song for us that you think is even better than the old, familiar, wonderful Valentine song. You eager little pusher that you are. Why do you say you're that? You're trying to get on the better side of me, aren't you? Oh, sir, you're joking, of You're course. trying to induce me to sing. Well, I was... So you can put me on radio. And you're not here for nothing. You're not here just to say how are you and happy birthday. You're here to push your uh... little kegs, aren't you? But, sir, I was told that you had a song for us, and are you mad at me? I'm always mad at you. Well, you've never shown it before. You're leading me down the path to corruption. <laughs> Well, sir, I, 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 I know you're kidding because there's a smile wringing, r- wreathing your mouth. You're uh, lying. There's no smile, folks. <laughs> if you want to start living a life that's live it with spirit. Valentine beer. There's more spirit to it. <laughs> the time. The evening of April 13th, 1964. The event the annual presentation of the coveted awards by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. On stage, Anne Bancroft, winner of the Oscar for her superb performance in The Miracle Worker, is now presenting Sidney Poitier with the Best Acting Award for his outstanding performance in Lilies of the Field. And now, Sidney Poitier and Anne Bancroft join their Oscar-winning talents for the first time in The Slender Thread. Sydney Poitier and Anne Bancroft are giving the performances of their lives in The Slender Thread. From Paramount Pictures. When a woman's emotions sway on a slender thread, expect anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. That's now playing at Lincoln Night and Lowe's Tower East. Okay. That's the 10th victim, huh? Or is it the Slender Thread? Oh, there are... Tuesday, Thursday at the Victoria Festival of Murray Hill Theatres. All right. Got it again? You want to try that again? That's the Slender Thread. Is always having all that's about? Thursday at the Victoria Festival and Murray Hill Theatres. It sounds like three theaters. Or is there a theater in town named Thursday? I don't know. <laughs> all right. Now let's get back to the world of reality here. Instead of that world of dreams where everything comes out right. and Sydney Poitier goes over big and all that. Well, we've got uh, you know, back to back to life here. But uh, yeah, would you, you got my BBC music set up there? This shows you that America is not the only place where the slobs are on the march. Please. And once again, the BBC presents tonight's salute to a great English woman. British Broadcasting Corporation, overlooking the great empire, brings you once again as its public service broadcasting. My God, we'll fight them on the hedgerows. We'll fight them from the beaches. Blood, sweat, and tears, By God. Sir H.G. Reginald Grubbage here, and tonight we salute a brilliant English woman. The British Broadcasting Corporation, of which I am unfortunately a member of the staff, heavily criticized in recent years for its ill-tempered satire shows, faced a storm today following the showing of a stark documentary-style television drama of London life in certain unfortunate areas. The play called Up the Junction. And I have no idea what that title means. Although I have an unfortunate idea what it could mean. Had angry viewers telephoning last night to complain of the raw treatment of the sexual moise of people living in Battersea, southwest London. An area no gentleman ever goes to. Mary Whitehouse. And tonight we are saluting her. Mary Whitehouse, co-founder of the Clean Up Television Campaign... An organization made mostly of valiant, middle-aged English women, said today that she had sent a protest letter to the Minister of Health, Kenneth Robinson. A BBC spokesman said, with typical BBC attitude, a number of telephone calls have been received about the play. We don't say how many were for or how many were against. Sir, you should be horsewhipped. And tonight, we salute Mary Whitehouse, valiant Englishwoman in the great tradition of Mrs. Minerva. Everywhere, Englishmen attempting to uphold the traditions of decency, and the standards of good taste and breeding will recognize her achievements. Were there more like her... Grey young men, indeed. I say, spoiled young man, give him a horse whipping and induct him into the army. And tonight, the British Broadcasting Corporation uh, once again salutes Englishmen everywhere and the far-flung empire. C.H.G. Reginald Grubbidge, here. Yeah. We'll return next week at the same time when you hear the sound of... week, the life and times of C. Aubrey Smith, the Englishman. Stay tuned for our Stem Collector's Program, which follows in just a moment. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation, third program. Thank you. Uh, this is... Uh, why do they put that on the show? Uh, this is W.O.R.A.M. at F.M. <laughs> New York, speaking of serious broadcasting, now, Josephine Levine presents. <laughs> Cello Mastriani against Ursula Andrews in The Tenth Victim, an unusual comedy about guns, lovers, and the hunt, the game that separates the men from the boys and makes them targets for the girls, The Tenth Victim. Marcello Mastriani as the prey. Who hasn't got a prayer? Ursula Andress as the hunter who's game for anything. They're murdered together. Marcello Mastriani and Ursula Andress in The Tenth Victim. A Carlo Ponte production from Embassy Pictures in Color. The Tenth Victim. All about things to come and ways to go. Yeah, that's right. Now playing at the Lincoln Art and Lowe's Tower East Theater. It has a great sound in there. I'll award you the brass figalge with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the theme they were playing in that. Did you hear it? Uh, do, you, do you know that? Uh, when you were a kid, was were there several songs that you used to use to denote various types of uh, human depravity? Like, for example, wait a minute, where's my... I guess none of my stuff is here. Huh? Okay. How about this one? Do you know this one? da 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 Did you do that when you were a kid? Did you use that? Uh, was that ever written? Do you know the name of the song itself? da 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 Somehow, that was obscene just to sing. Uh, in certain neighborhoods. Do you, was it actually a song or did they actually use it out? What happened to my bazooka and all that? Well, you said my kazoo. I didn't need that. I wanted the little thing. It's alright. Oh, you meant it always left home. Oh, okay. Alright, right. Don't right. get right. excited. You know, uh, speaking of, uh, commercials, do you have, uh, do you have another ET in there, Bob? Alright, this one is live. Viva Maria. Uh, all that talk about, uh, Brigitte Bardot, Jean Moreau, United Artists, Viva Maria. The Can-Can, Viva Boom Boom. Uh, they're not dancing. They're shooting cannons, leading armies, all other kinds of incredible activities. This sounds like one of the new pop-type uh fantasy films. Yeah, this is Viva Marie. It's on the scheduler. Uh, it's really magnificent, it says here, to see it in TanaVision, ElectroVision, and color. So be sure to see Bardot and Moreau in Viva Marie. I wonder what that color is like. Huh? Sounds like pure feelies in the yard wide, Uh, a la Huxley. Speaking of feelies, we have another one here. We have uh, Rover with us, beautiful automobile. And uh, for those of you who probably uh, think that uh, the Rover is the name of a large collie, uh, the Rover is a superb English automobile, and they also make, among other things, the Rover Magnificent Land Rover, which uh, C. Aubrey Smith uh, used to to, uh, tame the Belgian Congo, if you recall that. And uh, for those of you who've never seen the beautiful Rover 2000, I would recommend it. It's a great machine, and it's not cheap, by the way. Uh it's a, it's the kind of car for men who over the years have been uh, used to excellent sports car type handling, and don't find it in most of the so-called production machines that have a back seat in them. This is a grand turismo type automobile and is magnificently designed. Also, take all that stuff down. We have the electronic workshop Uh, and their beautiful uh, KLH equipment. Somebody wrote me a note here and says, Shepard, why don't you mention the KLH speakers? Well, all the KLH equipment which is built up in Boston, did you read that story? A strange story about KLH that appeared in the Times. Uh, Is it a big story up in Boston at all, Bob? Uh, The KLH people uh, became embroiled in a big national story recently about some kind of training program they had. Of hiring, I believe it was underprivileged people, a lot of things. And it was a big hoopla about it. I have it down on the desk. It's an interesting story. But this is a very advanced organization. They turn out some of the best high-fidelity equipment in the world today. And you'll see it on display at the Electronic Workshop at 26 West 8th Street in the village. It's good stuff. KLH, and if you plan to do anything for Christmas, you bring it down on the stick. Uh, they'll, they'll put it in. They'll, they'll install it and deliver their number is Gramercy 3-0140. Uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of the whole, the whole showbiz aspect of our, of our world today, did you see a show not too long ago of guys talking on, it was last night, I believe, late, late television. They have something on two o'clock in the morning. And these people were sitting around talking about public image. They were talking about public relations at two, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, they were discussing the whole, premise of of, uh, public relations and image what is an image Uh, what what is meant by creating an image what kind of an image does a does an organization have you know that that images are exceedingly subtle that some cars for example have an old lady image no matter what they do, they can paint the blood red, they can put the wire wheels, they can put in the, the zebra upholstery. Somehow, over the years, the image of little old ladies and old insurance men hang around this car. <laughs> yeah, you know them, nice people, but you know, they're just very square types. On the other hand, certain other things are, are, are uh, on the other side. Certain cars have an image of guys that wear leather jackets, and it says 14th Street AC on the back. And they're always with this tall blonde chick who yells and hollers and spills beer in the back seat, and you know that kind. Of, somehow that image is attached to that type of car. Now that that uh, they didn't get into that side of the image thing, but I ran across a little piece. I, I, image relates to people too. Uh, your your image is is in, and I, I use this word very advisedly because it's been so misused in the press. But the total impression there's there's an actual. Very technical phrase that psychologists use when they describe this, this thing. The impression, the total impression you have of a man. Now, when I say to you, uh, just take any, any person. Let's take a person who's famous. Let's say uh, Johnson. President Johnson. Now, very few people have ever talked to Johnson. I mean, uh, comparatively, uh, there's the a number of know him. Uh, what is the first thing? Now, I'm not even, uh, getting into your idea of what you, of course, immediately, you shouldn't bring up political people. Because immediately, all the Republicans, ah, that phony, wah, wah, wah. Uh, let's get somebody who's totally apolitical. Johnny Carson, will say. Uh, uh, let's take somebody who's even subtler than that. J.D. Salinger. Uh, somebody who's removed from you, once removed. You, you can't really quite have an idea. Norman Mailer, example. Uh yeah, these are all people that are public figures. What is your impression of this guy? What immediately springs to mind when I say uh let's say Charles Schultz, who draws peanuts? Uh or if I say Jules Pfeiffer, these are all national figures. We all know them. They're there. Or Gene Shepard, for that matter, you know me. So what is the first thing that comes to mind? A guy that plays the kazoo? You know, which, which is it? What is it? Well, this this is a subtle problem. And now today, for the first time, guys are beginning to to fiddle around with that. Now, it's not only, it's not only a thing that has to do with, uh, with, with businesses. It has to do with individuals. Do you know that in several major cities today, there are organizations developed that are in business right now. You can probably find them in the yellow book. They can create a new Charlie Rot. If your name is Charlie Apple, literally, they can create a new you. They program you. And, <laughs> I mean, I hate to use that phrase, but they, they reprogramming you. You know, a lot of guys just grew, you know, like Topsy. They, they, they nobody ever programmed their clothes. They went out, you know, they went over to, to the gas pipe racks and picked up, <laughs> that's it. They thought, gee, that's a nice one. And they got this purple thing with the little red checks and they put it on. And then they started, somehow they kind of like brown shoes and they bought brown shoes. Nobody ever stopped and says, look, Mr. Applerot, just one minute, Mr. Applerot, you're the Oxford Grey type. He hates Oxford Grey. That isn't the point. Uh, He would never have done that himself. And so you know how, how other great articles of fiction are worked over? You don't think that a book just gets written, do you? Of course not. People work on this thing. When you're creating a piece of fiction, when you're creating a stage play, it's fiction. It's not easy. So there's 19 guys. Abe Burroughs is called in when it's in Boston. It's in trouble. Uh, they, they, they get the Frank Lesser to come in. A couple of little tap dance in the second act there. They go out and they get Mike Nichols to, you know, lard it all over with sticks. And, uh, they, then, then when when it's really in trouble, they, they fire the star and go get Peter Sellers. And it's, this play doesn't come into town just like, you know, didn't just grow. It was put together, machine. Well, let's face it, friend. This is the age. Uh, bob this is the age of no identity right gang this is what all the novels are about well that means of course then that you are a clean slate there's no reason why you can't have an identity that that since it is the age of no identity there's no question but what somebody could produce one for you now that doesn't mean uh... a phony uh... resume not at all not a bit of it i mean a a whole new you has nothing to do with uh... With uh, taking exercises, running around the track, going to a reducing salon, nothing like that. And so what they do is you go to this place, see, it's like creating a, a work of fiction. Since you don't exist, you admit that now. We have no identity, there is no you. You do not exist. You walk around, you sweat, but you don't exist, and let's put it this way, in the larger sense. Okay, you got it, you got it, Dad. Well it's like, you know, all right, all right, let's put it let's put it another way now. If if, if forty eight guys in Queens or something, what well, is this not talking about? All right, now look, if you're if if you're walking around and you've got this great novel in your head, and almost every guy thinks he's got a great book in his head, it ain't a book until it's got a Library of Congress card, right? It is not it does not exist in the larger sense until Bennett Surf calls you by your first name. It just does not. And uh and Norman Cousins mentions you and that kind of thing and uh, Clifton Fadiman puts you down uh, you just don't exist until you've been blasted by the New York Times on a Sunday afternoon right there on the other side of the uh, the ads for the you know for the trusses and the big uh, and the big crossword puzzle that you just don't you know that, that the novel doesn't exist so now alright ipso facto ergo in hoc curricula now if if on the other hand since it doesn't does not exist you're just walking around. You, you admit you don't have any, any uh, identity, right, gang? Okay, then. Do you know that right here in this town, there is a place in the yellow book called Identities, Inc.? I'm serious. You give them a call, and by George, you go down there, and the, the identity, there is an identity programmer who is the first one who talks to you. And he sits down with you, and he says, what's your name? And you say, Charlie W. Applerod?" He says, no. Oh, boy, Charlie W. Applerot. Charlie W. Applerot is your old name. Of course, he says, if you want to hang out of that for sentiment's sake, if you want to keep it as a keepsake around the house, that name, all those old cards with your name on it, you're not Charlie W. Applerot. Uh, Just one moment here. And he feeds your weight, your height, your age, your mother and your father. He feeds uh, your ethnic background. He feeds the height, the relative height of your cheekbones, the width between your eyes. He feeds a few little information on your endocrine glands. He feeds all this into an IBM, and 20 seconds later, out it comes, punched out in blue and white indelible ink, and he'll turn to you, and he'll say, You are gaunt Rockwell. And, uh, well, right then and there, you know, you don't argue. Nobody here today (laughs) argues. I'm serious. you laughing. Everybody argues. You would not argue with a machine. There's no question about it. Your mother, walking around, you know, you're six minutes old, how did she know you were, you, you know, you were not a real basic Charlie? Uh, and, and somewhere way back in your early, in your early life, I mean, it's awful to be saddled with Apple rot. or Charlie, Charlie Seastrunk. So long, Bob. (laughs) You are not Bob Henneberry. And so, so he, he looks, he looks you right in the eye and says, you, you're Gaunt Rockwell. And you go through a course of about a month and a half. And by the end of that course, you are a totally new projection. Don't use the word person. That's out of date. No such thing as person any longer. Uh, nor is there any such thing as image any longer. That's an old, that's an old uh, word that went out about 1958. You're a projection. Now, an image, you see, unfortunately, is unchangeable. That's why that word went out. A projection can change. You can project almost anything. You are a ray of light that can be moved, that can be changed and and moved in. And And of course, they also program your clothing. It's very important. They program your your total clothing, uh, the concept of of your clothing. They they decide whether or not you're to be conservative, or whether you're to be uh, a radical revolutionary type, or whether you're going to be a middle of the road type. Really, I'm not putting it. this This is true that many a man has grown in this world totally unprepared to, to accept the battle that the world gives him in this time and age. And so you can program a new identity. Well, did you see this little note here the other day? Listen to this one. This is a typical example. A Cleveland fireman now are getting tips. In fact, all personnel are being given an intensive course on this, and they're being given tips on how to behave in front of the TV cameras. At disasters, uh, they're also given a course on how to talk to newsmen, how to describe the disaster, what kind of words to use. You know, you can't say uh, when the newsman says, "Well, and then what did you do, sir?" You say, "Ah, oh, I jumped out of the window. What do you think I did? I grabbed and jumped." That is not the way you say it. You say, "Well, because the flames was licking at at the uh, base of my polling scaling ladder." I took the uh, victim in my arms, and I retreated valiantly, and then I, of course, uh, covering up my, my uh, retreat with my body, I retreated valiantly, and now here I am before Channel 4. You just, you know, you just say, I jumped. That's not enough. No, <laughs> so, so they tell you how to do that, how to, uh, you know, work in front of a camera. It's just, and at one, one session of the school, the subject was how to get a raise. Now they didn't. Uh, they were, not you know, they they know that cameramen are constantly asking these people these things, and so he says, when when you're when you're asked by a TV newsman, don't say we make sixty six hundred a year. What you have to say is we make only two twenty eight an hour, which comes to the same thing, you see. <laughs> but it sounds. <laughs> And here is the final one, which I think is a great line. It just tells so much about the new image projection world that we've got. They were all... The, the final note in the mimeograph form that they got as a kind of a class uh, uh, experimentation, uh, a series of things that they, they were supposed to carry away in the final class. It says, They were all admonished... What? Now, from now on, every fire is a serious fire. And at each fire... You are told to ham it up, dance around, and look busy. Well, <laughs> now, now this this uh, this uh, concept of, is, I I have a feeling that people have been working with the guys that are tearing streets up. Have you noticed that for a long time you just there would just be a big hole in the ground? There'd be a couple of saw horses and a lot of lunch bags, and uh, a lot of empty beer cans and stuff and after a while people got mad and I said oh come on when are they gonna cover up the street we've been climbing up over the rocks now for weeks for crying out loud the dust now have you noticed around every excavation there is more production than Gene Rosenthal gives a Richard Rogers musical they have these big doors all painted red and yellow and pop art they have cartoons they hire cartoons now to write funny things all over the fr- sides of them. have you seen that the little holes that you can look in in stereo and watch the guys sitting around eating their salami sandwiches, and uh, <laughs> oh yeah, and even even the even the workers themselves them in costumes. Have you noticed how many of them are in TV commercials now, and they're wearing the big yellow hats and all that stuff? This is all part of the new image to make uh, the guy who is in, in effect causing you uh, problems to make him a fun guy to have around. And more neighborhoods, I'm sure than not, are going to say, "Remember the old days when." The guys from the gas company were out there with the tap dancers and the guys with the music, but uh, <laughs> but this this uh, this part of the public relation image, uh, which is is, uh, is is really a, a day by day working around thing that we all have. Most people feel I think because we're so oriented to showbiz today, we watch movies so much. I wonder how many hours a month the average person clocks watching. A gray and white and black image on a screen of whatever width. Just curious, how much the average person sits in front of a television set in one way or another. Now I'm not. I, I'm sure somebody's going to send me statistics on how the average family. But I'm talking about all kinds of images. Walking down the street and you look at a signboard, and there's that tall, thin, lanky guy with the bronze cheekbones. Now he's he's up there. He's looking down at you. He's drinking a can of beer. And he's waving it at you, and he says, "Look at this, man." He says, "Join me in Valentine Country, or whatever it might be." He looks down at you, and for one instant, you are looking at a projection of a fantasy. You walk another twenty feet, and you stand, and you look at the at the, at, a, at a bunch of magazines on a newsstand. Forty-five hundred chicks are looking at it. Bridget Bando, Sophia Lauren, over here is Cary Grant. Is there one real? is it is are they projecting an image of course they are you know this is a, the, the, the to project an image of the movie star or the model or the guy on the screen is as fictitious as any creation by Arthur Miller there is no real bridget bardot in the sense that most people think of bridget bardot there isn't forget it this is a girl uh but what you are seeing when you see her in person or on the screen in a, in a TV newscast, is a composite of all the roles she's played. Uh, she's, she's a composite of the roles, the production, the light, the scenery, the whole scene. You know that up in Columbia, or Cornell rather, they have a course in role-playing. Now, it has nothing to do with the theatrical department. It's in the business administration department, and it's, it's a course in role-playing. Now, what they mean is, when you go in to get a job and you walk around, you get on the 23rd floor, what kind of a guy are you going to be? Are you going to be friendly old Fred that everybody kicks around? Are you going to be hard-heading, dynamic Clarence, the guy that everybody sticks, a, everybody sticks a knife into the back because he's dangerous? Or are you going to be uh, old Howard, the one that everyone comes to and always secretly wants to be the boss? In other words, are you going to be the Mr. Roberts of your company? What role are you going to play? And now now most guys didn't know they were ever playing roles. I don't think my father, he was, was, you know, just him. He walked around, and that was the end of it. He didn't know there was such a thing as that. But yet, today, people, since apparently they don't have any real them, uh, that being a role, uh, having a role created for them, is perfectly normal and natural. Most magazines today... I would say probably three out of five magazines every month run one or two or maybe more articles on how to transform yourself into something else. You've seen those, you know, particularly the women magazines. Forty, 40 ways on how to become dynamic, wonderful, beautiful, glamorous, and keep all the men in your life together in one little pile. You know, that, that you've seen these things. Uh, uh, they, they really, in effect, tell you to become another person. You read this and they say, uh, be bright, be chipper, be alert. Always have a smile on your face. Always be positive. Maybe it'd be negative. Come right out and say the things you want, but say with a laugh and a smile. That's totally alien to your personality. Maybe you're solemn in real life. Maybe you're the type that hides under the daybed. And so what you're being told to, of course, is uh, get rid of that old person and create this new scene. It's uh, it's all part of a all part of a I guess a basic belief that we don't really think we, there is a real me, a real us, a real I'm. If there's one question that is asked, whenever I do a, any kind of a, a, a live show outside, like uh, at Seton Hall last week, or uh, down at the Limelight uh, on a Saturday night, one question that's, that's always asked the people like uh, Bob here, the engineer who works with me, or Lee who works with me, is, uh, what's Shepard really like? <laughs> Well, that, isn't, that, isn't that true? That's the one question. Because it is a tacit admission that everybody is making that all the images they see coming out of these million and one screens and loudspeakers and one thing and another is a purely fictitious creation. It's as created, it's as fictitious as a plastic yo-yo. And, and there it is. It's, it's fun. I had a kid the other night at the limelight come up to me and he said, there's a funny thing. He says, uh, uh hey, Shemp, uh, you, you didn't really come from Indiana, did you? Well, I asked him, I says, well, why do you say that? He says, well, well I don't know, you know, come on, did you really come from Indiana? I said, well, yes, I did, as a matter of fact, but I'm curious why you would ask that, why you would think that I didn't come from Indiana. Well, you know, I'm on the radio and all that. Well, <laughs> so the, the impression that I got ultimately was that they don't believe that the people they hear or the people they see on the screen ever came from any place. Now, if I said that I came from Trenton, he'd say the same thing. I, did you really come from Trenton? Oh, come on. But did you really come from Rabbit Hatcher, Idaho? Really? Because it doesn't seem real that a person should really be from somewhere. A person who is an abstraction. Uh, it, it doesn't seem real that Bridget uh could have been six and lived in this crummy little house and had cracked walls and uh, was not a sex kitten. You see, <laughs> and so and, and and if you notice that the more a person is is real, that is, the more a person, you, the more you know about a person, the more you know in reality about him, the less you will accept that artificial created image. That's why they always say that that the that in theater always keep the proscenium arch between you and the audience, always. John, and you're drinking coffee with Hamlet. You're sitting there, and and uh, you're all going out for a hot dog and yelling and hollering. You go out for a game of pool with with uh, with you know Polonius, and you're having a uh, yeah you know you're having a big argument about politics with uh, with King Lear. Well, ultimately, you don't believe them. You just don't believe that. That uh, no matter how well he plays it, uh, you just don't believe him anymore. And that's that's why I suppose that people want to keep that that crazy split between the reality and the, the real thing. And yet they don't want to. They want to break it down. The more they they want to know about this person, they want to know about Bridget Bar. And yet they don't want to know. The more they know about the fact that maybe Bridget Bardot lived in this crummy little apartment, and she has a two-bit agent, and they yell and holler all the time about it, and, and the sex kitten thing uh, was somebody, uh, some little two-bit agent thought up, and uh, she's actually uh, 62 years old, and you know, all that stuff. You don't want to know any of that stuff, you see, and yet you do want to know it. So so uh, there's, that, there's that crazy, in-between, the wild, swinging, peculiar dichotomy. And I found, I found that... Uh, in in uh, in theater or showbiz, whatever you want to call it, that, that word, the image, is what most people envy. They envy these fictional characters that they see on the screen. They envy them tremendously, and this is the image they would like to have. Ultimately, I suppose, everybody would like to be a film star. I suspect that everybody would like to have his life totally filmed. No real life at all and so so that the only place you would see your friends would you'd have to go down to the victoria and see your old friend charlie and fred and they're playing uh, renaissance uh, nights or something they're they're playing uh, they're playing uh, uh, in an italian uh, sand opera uh, and so, so you you you've got this problem of of uh, of, of again I suppose total showbiz taking over to the point now where I, whenever whenever I stand up before an audience and I say how many of you want to be in the theater or showbiz three quarters of the hands go up and the others twitch. Yeah. <laughs> so so I I say you know, have you noticed have you noticed now that one of the big new gimmicks among uh, various types of resorts. Uh, any kind of a a two-week resort, for example, a place where you go skiing or you walk around or you play golf, is to have a celebrity in resident. And, And the celebrity doesn't act or sing or perform. The celebrity is just there. And that somehow lends the shoddy little place the glamour of the world that that celebrity purportedly lives in during his image life. And so if you're sleeping three cubicles away from Cary Grant, you're occupying the same world that Cary Grant and Aubrey Hepburn occupied for one brief instant. Boy, ask me about that time that I was the the resident celebrity at a place. Oh, you couldn't believe it. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, this place, you know, where they had ketchup on the table. Oh, man. Oh. (laughs)